0: I'm Alexander Hefner, your host on The Open Mind. You're listening to our podcast edition of the program. I'm delighted to welcome University of Texas School of Law professor Stephen Vladek. Thank you so much for joining me today, professor.
1: Of course. Thanks for having me.
0: Let me ask you about the legitimacy of the court. If Amy Coney Barrett is confirmed and is the ninth justice on a new court, Does the majority of the American people view that court as illegitimate?
1: You know, it's it's a good question that I'm not sure I I can answer. And just because I don't know how to count, right? That is to say, you know, everyone's gonna have their own views of whether the court is or is not legitimate. I I think a lot's gonna depend on what the court does. I mean, it's one thing if, you know, Amy Coney Barrett's confirmed and in like three weeks, you know, she's the swing vote in a case that throws the election to Trump, not hard to imagine in that circumstance that the court's going to have a huge legitimacy crisis. But, you know, the flip side is what about a world where, you know, the election goes smoothly, she's confirmed and the court actually, you know, doesn't spend the next four years striking down everything that a Biden administration does. You know, I think the legitimacy conversation is just, it's nuanced and it's hard and it's messy. And so I think a lot of folks are going to be very bitter about her confirmation. Um, I think there's still lingering bitterness about the Gorsuch and Kavanaugh confirmations. Whether that means we're going to impugn the court's legitimacy as a whole, I think is is still very much to play for because a lot of it, I think, depends on what, the, what this new court actually does.
0: That's really nuanced and helpful, I think, in discerning the trajectory. And part of that trajectory is honoring super precedent. And when we see in... Her confirmation hearing, her application, her so-called application of the Ginsburg rule to really deny merit to longstanding judicial and jurisprudential norms. That doesn't really suggest the the latter of the two directions you you described, the the latter being that she uh, heeds precedent and there's a smooth election and there's not a desire to uh, judicially activate um a an anti um biden you know or anti uh, democratic president agenda
1: yeah i mean I, I you know there's lots in her answers that i'm not i'm not wild about I, I think the the thing from my perspective is that i don't expect a justice barrett to be the swing vote right on the court going forward i think the real question is what would her confirmation do to someone like a Justice Kavanaugh or Justice Gorsuch? I mean, we already knew, you know, before Justice Ginsburg passed away that, you know, Chief Justice Roberts had become the median. And, you know, we had seen Chief Justice Roberts actually, I, I think move a bit toward not if not the left, at least toward, you know, institutionalist positions in some of these cases over the last year. I don't think it's unreasonable to think the same thing would happen to a Kavanaugh and or a Gorsuch. You know, in a world where there's a Biden administration, that that's that's not to say you know I am happy with how Judge Barrett has answered these questions, but it just you know I think it's it's too easy to sort of lapse into you know broadsides um, in a in a world in which I think that the actual reality is very nuanced. I mean, the the last time we saw you know such sort of widespread systematic legitimacy concerns about the court. Was the 1930s, um, and you know, before anything external could be done to the court, the court itself moved. Um, and I guess you know, I'm 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 not yet convinced that that's not in the offing this time around as well. What would lead me perhaps to
0: see that it's not in the direction is the decision, just you know, with respect to the, the way the court is proceeding on voting rights during the mm-hmm. election. So. Mm-hmm. Specifically, the census, um, which the court is saying the, the count must stop. Um, the the decision as to not consider the violation of the emoluments clause, which was new terrain for uh, Supreme Court jurisprudence, um, but not invalid and not unworthy of their consideration. But um, you know, if if the court without Barrett is going to Allow the executive branch to defy those constitutional norms with respect to census counting, with respect to emoluments. Um, how, how could it possibly be that with Judge Barrett on the court, it would it would be uh, skeptical of a Republican uh, president or a Republican um, Senate? Uh, those two. Um, Orders within the span of this week did suggest to me that the court is not really prepared to play play um, play it by sort of equal rules for for both political parties.
1: So I, I think that's right. But I, I think, I guess, to me, and maybe this is just because, you know, where you stand is a function of where you sit. You know, to me, the notion that the court is inconsistent um, and that more often than I think it ought to right, these decisions end up favoring Republicans and hurting Democrats, that raises legitimacy concerns. I, I don't know that that therefore means the court is completely in the tank and unredeemable. Um Right. I mean, the same, you know, the same court that decided Shelby County um, decided Obergefell. And so and, and, you know, with Justice Kennedy in the majority both times. So I'm not I'm not trying to sugarcoat this. I think the court is very hostile to not just large swaths of the Democratic policy agenda, but also to, you know, pretty fundamental tenets of just basic American democracy. But I also think there's only so much the court can do. And so if we get through the next month and, you know, Biden... Mix it through, and the Democrats, you know, control both houses of Congress next year. I, I think there's a really good chance that they can pass, you know, meaningful voting rights reforms um, that wouldn't raise constitutional concerns. I think there's, you know, a lot of stuff they'll be able to do democratically that the court won't have any leg to stand on to strike down. So it, it's not that I don't fear the court, and it's not that I don't think that this is a real turning point for the court to have someone like Justice Ginsburg replaced with someone like Judge Barrett, I just think that we need to be careful not to think that therefore all is lost. Um, Because the reality is the court hears, you know, 50 to 60 cases a year, maybe 15 to 20 of those are the high profile visible ones. Um, And there's a lot of room for local, state and federal governments through the political process um, to enact a lot of the reforms I think we need and to you know enact them in a way that's not going to be constitutionally vulnerable so I guess it's just I just want us to keep things in perspective yes this is bad um, but you know it's it would be so much it, it's so much less bad than for example four more years of of what we've had.
0: Right were you surprised on the outcomes in the census case and in the emoluments case and and to the extent that we're anticipating Uh, decisions affecting the votes in Wisconsin and Pennsylvania, how do you think that will shape out?
1: So I I wasn't surprised in the emoluments case because that case, that particular case had a procedural problem. It had a standing issue. You know, there are still two more emoluments cases in the pipeline um, where we might yet see the court weigh in. Um, I I was a bit surprised on the census case. Um, It's not, you know, I, I really didn't think the government's position there was especially compelling with regard to the urgency of the matter. Um, but of course, I mean, as you know, we've seen the Supreme Court in the last couple of years really um, start treating emergency applications from the government as if they're just you know ordinary um, and and not holding the government to a higher standard. I actually think there's a lot to watch for in the forthcoming decision in the Pennsylvania case. Um, So there are these two state applications before the court right now, trying to put on hold a decision by the Pennsylvania Supreme Court where the Pennsylvania Supreme Court had interpreted Pennsylvania state law to allow state elections officials to count absentee ballots that are received up to two days after election day, if they're postmarked by election day or if they have no postmark or the postmark is illegible. Um, and there's applications from both members of the Pennsylvania legislature and from the GOP, part, the, the Republican Party in Pennsylvania to the Supreme Court to put that on hold um, pending the, you know, pending the appeal. Um, the court hasn't acted on that yet, which says to me that they're divided. And I think that actually is probably as big a case as they've had thus far with regard to the November election. And so if we get an order from the court denying a stay or you know maybe granting a stay in part, but not in full, I think we can all sort of breathe a little. You know, I think that would be a sign that the court is not just totally trying to, you know, maneuver the election in the president's favor. Um, If we get an order from the court that says, yes, we're staying all of this, no absentee ballots that arrive after election day can be counted. Yeah, I think that's going to be a pretty alarming moment. Um, And I think I I would expect all three of the, you know, remaining progressive justices to dissent rather vehemently in such a case. You know, the fact that we haven't gotten that yet suggests to me that something else is afoot.
0: Right. And and when we say progressive justices, we're talking about justices who support the franchise. And whereas that might have been viewed as a leftist issue, (laughs) from from my perspective, that is actually deeply intertwined in the Constitution and fundamental to our original understanding of of this republic and and what kind of government we facilitate. To, To this same question about Texas... Of course, the three Trump appointed judges uh, held up the governor's order to install only one dropbox in the largest county in the whole state. And and this is at a standstill. Basically, as I understand it, Professor, they're they're really just trying to get to Election Day without having to have more dropboxes in the county which contains Houston.
1: Um, well, and, and not—I and not, mean, not just Houston. I mean, I think you know. I mean, I'm in—I'm in Travis County, um, and you know, one of the really weird things about Texas is that it's—we perceive it as a red state. It's actually a very purple state. It's just a very gerrymandered purple state, um, and so Houston, right? Harris County has four 2 million people. Um, You know, Travis County, where I live, which is Austin, has 1.1 million people. And so there's been this weird sort of give and take about remote drop-off locations for mail-in ballots. Um, And the latest is that, you know, the governor back in July um, had opened the door for counties to have multiple locations, and then he changed his mind on October 1st. And the Fifth Circuit, as you said, um, said that was fine. Um, I'll just say this about the Fifth Circuit opinion. Um, In order to uphold the order, they had to basically lie about what Abbott did. Um, It's really a pretty disgraceful opinion. Um, But, you know, there's parallel litigation pending in Texas state court that I think has a better shot to actually, you know, restore the idea that you get multiple drop-off locations. But, you know, I I think it's worth Again, putting things in context. This is about whether those who are allowed to vote remotely with mail-in ballots, um, but don't want to use the mail, right? Um, This is about how they can drop off their ballots. And so it's a big deal, but compared to the actual widespread availability of early voting in person in Texas, um, you know, I think, again, it's If we're talking pure numbers, um, the much bigger deal is that we saw yesterday on the first day of early voting in Texas, record turnout um, in a number of counties, including a bunch of Democratic strongholds. So, again, I mean, I'm not trying to see the world through rose colored glasses. I think there are some really nefarious things going on with efforts to try to sort of, you know, Republicans trying everywhere they can to make it harder for people to vote. I just think that, you know, the way this is trending they're going to fail. Um, and when they do, the most important thing that Democrats can do is put in reforms so that it will be harder going forward You know, for these kinds of attacks to succeed.
0: And those people who want to drop off their ballot and, and avoid social interaction um, you know, on a line potentially, uh, we've seen so far there's been uh, adherence to social distancing and folks are separating it themselves within seven feet um, for lining up to vote early. Um, the specific desire for the drop boxes availability, um, which is universal in a place like Colorado is, is for folks to avoid to have that contact amid this pandemic. Mm-hmm. But, but what it sounds like is, if this is gonna be overruled, if Texas is gonna be overruled, that will happen at some point You know, within a week of the election. Um, and the impact of it would have been felt. You know, in other words, if, if Abbott and the three judges were really trying to depress turnout of those who are afraid to vote in person during the pandemic, that they would have achieved that goal.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, it, it's interesting. I mean, back in July, one of the things that Governor Abbott did was he extended early voting here in Texas by a week. Um, and one of the really remarkable things about, and, and he's been pilloried by republicans for doing that um, which i think is a pretty good side of how it's you know how it who it benefits and who it hurts and so i guess th- this is the bar put is that i think like so many other things about trump you know the what's going on right now is exposing all of these um pressure points in our existing laws where there just isn't enough clarity where it's just not settled sufficiently that like you know the goal is to make it as easy for people who are allowed to vote to vote and so you know i guess i i want i want us to be spending at least as much time thinking about how we're going to reform the laws you know the next time we can which hopefully is as soon as next january let's talk about that um so in
0: Judge Barrett's confirmation hearing, she has um, identified um, m- much of the Warren court's decisions and the civil rights era law um, as something she can't weigh on. She she can't weigh on it. Um, she at one point alluded to Brown v. Board as super precedent, but when it comes to One person, one vote, separation of church and state, Uh, laws broadly against racial discrimination, segregation and hate laws, laws protecting the environment, Miranda uh, and other rights of the, the accused. These are simply things that she refuses to comment with any certainty are sacrosanct, are part of the American tradition today of our constitutionality. And so, while there's a lot of focus on the ACA case and reproductive rights, Roe, and same-sex marriage, and you know, Grutter and Gratz, and revisiting affirmative action, those are the, those are sort of the hot-button issues of the '90s and the 2000s. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Then you have this litany of questions about whether she would adhere to norms that were established throughout the 20th century. Um,
1: Do you see it that way? I guess, you know, again, I'm probably idiosyncratic. I I don't love this whole sort of idea that we should get pre-commitments from judges to particular lines of precedent and to particular decisions. I mean, I think, you know, we all know what's going on here and we all understand why both people are trying to get her to say this and why she won't. Um, I, I think the larger problem is that we live in a day and age where all that matters is getting through the most extreme nominee on your side who can muster 50 votes. And so because of that extremism, I mean, you know, we know where she stands on Roe and we know where she stands on Brown, and we know where she stands on all of these things. And I just, you know, I, I wish that the conversation were instead like, why is extremism what we're looking for in our justices as opposed to moderation, right? Why, why is it impossible today to think that someone like a Sandra Day O'Connor could ever be confirmed to the Supreme Court? And so, you know, it's, yes, I wish you were more honest about where she sits on these things, because I think we all know what her answers are. Just like justice Kavanaugh said, he, you know, wouldn't commit to certain things. And then as soon as he's on the court, he commits to them. I just, I just think that this is a charade.
0: Having said that though, you know, if, if uh, some of the right, but not extreme right, senators heard explicitly her critiques, uh, if not condemnation of Brown v. Board or, Uh, one person, one vote, or, you know, uh, the abolition of, of prayer in public school. Th- th- there may well be some senators, Republican senators, not just in this election year, who would vote against her. Um, now, the, the confirmation process, like you're pointing out, um, is now really, you, you win by omission. Uh, you win by comporting yourself uh, in a professional manner. Um, and otherwise, you know, you, you really stay mum on um, case law. But it used to be that you were mum on like current case law that could come before the court. But anything that was considered super precedent or the historiography of the court and understanding the advances of human rights and dignity. That was something you could weigh on constructively. you know. And, and I'm just saying that there is a tension, yes, in that there is an extremeness sought in the nominees, but there's also a failure of a process. There might as well not be confirmation hearings if you can't hear people's historical and analytical perspectives, I mean, nominees' perspectives.
1: Yeah, I mean, I guess, I mean let's go back to Kavanaugh for a second, right? I mean, Susan Collins did this whole dance with Kavanaugh, um, right, where everyone on the left understood it was a dance, right? Everyone understood that he was not being completely forthcoming and that she was, you know, playing the sort of naive, gullible senator. Um, and we all knew where that was going to end up, right? And what does Kavanaugh do in the first two cases the court gets where abortions at issue? You know, he sides with the, with the anti-abortion crowd. So I guess I just I I understand why it would be helpful to get rid of the theater, right? Because if Barrett came out and said, yes, I'm fervently pro-life, yes, I'm anti-Roe, yes, it would make it a little bit harder for Susan Collins to, you know, furrow her brow and vote for her. Um, But I mean, we all know what's going on here. And I guess I just... But um, but I don't think that judges, if you go back to justice or or then
0: judge and and never Justice Bork, I mean, there was an extremeness in in Amy Coney Barrett's refusal to talk about respecting precedent of Miranda or of um you know one person one vote I mean that that is extreme even by um the standard of the most extreme nominee that
1: Nixon put forward you know so I, I just, but, but 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 this is but this is my broader point, right? Which is that we all know she's extreme. Like the you know, we all understand that like the Barrett's not being nominated because she's a moderate. And so I guess you know, would it really make that big of a difference if she was forthcoming when we all know what her answers are? And maybe the answer is yes. I think right.
0: I think because it's 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 still ostensibly a republic or a democratic republic and people's right to inform. Themselves and our necessity to be informed as a citizenry is, is what makes the judiciary and it's what makes our society. Yep. I think the failure for those disclosures and that candor or just straightforwardness um, will will ultimately lead public perception and opinion um, to be con- continue to be in in such opposition to or inconsistent with the rulings of the court. The public- no,
1: I, I agree with that, I guess, but but here's my question. I mean, if I were a democratic Senator, am I better off asking her questions that she dodges or am I better off actually helping to educate the public right on why originalism is not actually a satisfying methodological approach to constitutional interpretation and on why this notion that like you know judges have a fidelity that that why fidelity to text doesn't actually answer you know 60 percent of the hard cases I guess it's just in, in in a world of finite resources and in a world of finite time you know I guess I would prefer a confirmation hearing where the democratic senators instead of this awkward you know can I get you to commit to things that you're never going to commit to just actually use that time to educate the public. I, I feel like it's such a one sided conversation where the Republicans say, you know, we're faithful to law, we call balls and strikes. And there are so many obvious ways to show how that's just nonsense. And instead, you know, the Democratic senators spend their time asking her questions she won't answer. And so it's not that I disagree with you. It's just that I think, you know, in a world in which this is always asymmetrical warfare, I'd like to see a little more effort by Democrats, you know, to attack the premises and not just the results.
0: I think that's an important point and uh, really sage advice to those senators. And there are a few who've, who've heeded it. Um, uh, unfortunately, not enough, but let, let right. me ask you this to close Please, Th- those federalist society cheerleaders um, who, and, and advocates who Um, were pleased to support Donald Trump um, for judicial appointments, uh, stacking the federal bench, um, packing the Supreme Court with three extremely conservative judges, um, two justices, likely a third justice now. Um, Do you think that they are on the same page with the demolition of all of the Warren court's rulings and all of the civil rights legislation? Um, you know clearly uh, George Conway and checks and balances and and you know others have come out who once identified themselves um, as part of that tight knit group and some still are cheerleading for Amy Coney Barrett, um, but the reality is um, they you know I I don't know how many of the textualist strict constructionalists originalists are in the camp of wanting to repeal uh, or overturn the, that body that I described, mm-hmm. even going all the way back to social security, Medicare, Medicaid. Yep. Um, and I hope that you could just weigh in on from your perspective, what percent of, of the um, strict constructionist lobby <laughs> um, <laughs> supports the wholesale Um, revision of contemporary American society, not just affirmative action, not just abortion, um, and not just same-sex marriage, but all the other issues that we talked about today?
1: Um... It's, it's a great question, um, and I'm not sure I'm a, the right person to answer. I mean, that's really a question for local scientists. I will just say that I think that it's, uh, again, and, and I, I realize I'm beating a dead horse. I think this is where the talking points version of the story and the, and the nuance are, are very different. Um, most Americans, including those who self-identify as conservatives, support a heck of a lot of the Warren court's seminal jurisprudence. I mean, Gideon, Right, the right to counsel um, is a seminal decision that just about everybody except Justice Thomas supports. Um, right, you know, Miranda is actually pretty popular even among Republicans, and so, you know, when and and indeed Roe, right, which of course is the front and center piece of all of this, isn't even a Warren Court decision. Um, so, so I think you know when we talk about like the all of the foundational precedents of the Warren Court era that are still on the books, I don't think there's going to be a massive revision of those precedents i think it's going to be much subtler and more insidious which is that you know a conservative court's going to make it much harder to enforce the rights that those cases recognize, a conservative court might identify newfound exceptions to some of those rights. Um, But when we talk about even some of the more significant modern decisions like Obergefell and gay marriage, I'm not actually worried that even a 6-3 court with a Justice Barrett is gonna reverse Obergefell because I just think that like the societal cost of that are far greater than the doctrinal satisfaction would be and and so i think i I end where we started which is with the court's legitimacy you know john roberts is no fool and he as much as anybody else understands that the only way for his long-term project to succeed where a conservative court is able to exert hegemony over an increasingly democratic both small d and big d you know, polity, is if the court is perceived as legitimate. The easiest way to destroy that project is to rush too quickly to to, to pair back these precedents. Um, and so, you know, again, I, I think it is incredibly unfortunate that it looks like we're gonna have a Justice Barrett replacing a Justice Ginsburg, but I think we shouldn't assume that the court overnight is gonna convert into a, you know, um, Republicans uber alles machine, not because they don't want to, but because at least some of them are going to understand that it is actually decidedly against their long-term interest to do that.
0: Stephen Bladdick, uh professor of law at the University of Texas. Uh, thank you so much for your insight today.
1: Of course. Thanks for having me.